on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. I was drawn to uh, an image of, of Lord Shiva. Right. And Shiva is, in a way, kind of like the ultimate masculine. He's like a badass, right? I mean, he's he's like the, the, the archetypal yogi. He can sit for months without food or without water. He's a cosmic dancer in the stories. He's absolutely fierce. Like, when, when, when shit's going down and nobody knows how to save the world, it's like, call Shiva. Like, mm. nobody's going to mess with him. Like, he can figure out this situation, you know? But he's also a bad boy. You know, he's kind of like the James Dean sometimes of, like, the Hindu mythology where... You know, he can he can he can drink and party and yet he can go into deep and profound states of meditation mm. and he has no interest whether women are into him or not. Um, so he's he was very appealing to me. Mm. What does it mean to be a man today? The old archetypes of masculinity are dissolving and the new ones are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Zamir Danji is a longtime friend and ally. He is trained in Hatha Yoga in the lineage of Swami Gitananda. His spiritual guru of the last eight years is the Buddhist wisdom master, Matik Intin lineage holder of the mind treasure teachings, which are aimed as a direct means of cultivating the mind of enlightenment. This path includes the study of Buddhist teachings and applying oneself as a bodhisattva, dedicated to the benefit of all sentient beings as a servant of life. He serves as a lead instructor for the Langara College Yoga Teacher Training Program, instructing in yoga asana, pranayama, philosophy, and meditation. He weaves a long-time love of music, poetry, and movement into his workshops and sessions, and continues to play with the Vancouver-based world music collective, Nod. In this episode, Zamir and I discuss the masculine cosmology of India, what human love taught him about the divine, and his own journey into healing the relationship with his father. Ultimately, we explore how the mythic archetypes of the past could provide us with a model of healing the current conflict between the masculine and the feminine. Thank you, Ian, for having me. Hmm. The mythic masculine. The mythic masculine. Mm. Yeah, well, you mean you are pioneering in this work, so I'm honored to be here. Mm. Before we get into all of it, I'm sure, uh, I'd love for you to just situate us where we are in this moment. In this moment, we are in a beautiful apartment overlooking English Bay in Vancouver, British Columbia. And it's a clear night and an auspicious one for a conversation such as this. Mm. I'd love to ask you first about uh, an auspicious day that just happened a few days ago. It was International Men's Day. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd love to hear how that was for you, how you heard about it. Maybe you knew about it beforehand. I myself had, you know, I came to my attention a few years ago. And so I've been more alerted and willing to to post about it, to stand for it, really. And uh, and I'm curious how that was for you. Well, it's funny. I think I might have seen it from a post that you made on Facebook <laughs> or something, to be honest. I bet you did. Yeah. And, and then I remember the day coming and feeling like, oh, International Men's Day. Like, I kind of wanted to celebrate, but I felt kind of awkward as if, you know... Um, to post something that on social media, you almost feel like uh, this doesn't seem 
right to call for celebration of men. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of a funny feeling. So we kind of just, you know, shuffled on with the day <laughs> as if it was just another one. <laughs> Would you speak it, to why? Yeah, why did it feel a bit awkward or kind of like, ooh, I don't know if I can. Well, I think the the climate of especially in in, in in social media, but just in general, is is men want to draw as little attention to themselves as possible mm. because the, the risk of drawing attention to yourself for virtue of being a man mm-hmm. opens you up to probably some attack from some corner or the other, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and all the things that, you know, you may or may not be defending um, with the time that you're given, you know, maybe acknowledging or celebrating or promoting your, yourself as a man, mm-hmm. you know. And do you feel then that that's the tone of it is more like, uh, hey, look at us, we're men, like, give us more kudos. Like, is that the perception that you have as well or the criticism or what made you actually be willing to to post about it and actually maybe stand behind it as something to celebrate? Well, you know, uh, now that I think about it, I wish I post something that I had written um, about six months ago. And it was uh, it was a spoken word piece called The Woman in Me. And it was after what was happening, I don't remember exactly where in the United States it was, but where they had passed a um, uh, a law that didn't allow women to choose abortion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And it was a very recent thing. Mm-hmm. Do you remember where that was? Uh, Oregon, maybe? For, poll the audience? Do you remember? No, I, Oregon's no. way more liberal than that. I figured. Oh, was it Florida? It was somewhere where basically, but that that was the issue at the time, and and it was something that, you know, got a lot of people up in arms. So mm-hmm. this this poem came out in terms of recognizing the woman inside of me, mm-hmm. um, and I feel like almost would that have been authentic to share that? I mean, I feel that there is a part of me that wants to show that men are acknowledging their interconnectedness and oneness with women and with the feminine, and. Part of my resistance to celebrating the being of a man is that it immediately appears as if it really is something different and separate from being a woman. Like you're, you're almost reinforcing that like I'm a man and here's what makes me a man, mm-hmm. which ironically is part of what makes the International Women's Day so powerful mm-hmm. and the feminine women so powerful is because there's a claiming of womanhood and to be a woman. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel the pressure on the man is to not claim so much what makes them a man, but how they are in support of or recognizing uh, the power of woman, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. sort of what maybe what we explore or what you're exploring this podcast. But, you know, that GQ article of the new masculinity is sort of showing uh, a vision of a man that is is much more attuned to the feminine. Mm -hmm. I would love for the listeners to hear a bit more of your background, actually. Um, you know where yeah. you grew up, uh, the culture that you've um, that you grew up with, or or, or you're in your ancestry, and begin to um, move into those, uh, let's say, other alternate mythologies of understanding what it means to be a man, or or what has guided you yeah. in your own journey of how to be a man. I know you have quite a quite a colorful actually uh, uh, growing up in many different cultures, and mm-hmm. but largely my understanding is um, not necessarily the generic western mm-hmm. model and so that could be really helpful i think for the listeners and for our conversation to hear more about that yeah my own background i was born in vancouver but i grew up in hong kong and thailand my parents are indian and um, my grandparents were born in africa on my dad's side and in india on my mom's side and you know religiously i was 
between two religions. One was Sikhism and the other was Islam. Mm. And personally, my spiritual journey has taken me through um, Buddhism and Sufism, Sikhism and, uh, and the yoga tradition. So I feel like a lot of my, my upbringing or guidance has been through the, you might say, like the Eastern tradition, mm-hmm. right? As mm-hmm. opposed to the Western tradition, mm-hmm. or whatever you might call that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd love to know for listeners as well, uh, if you could begin to maybe speak to perhaps the one that you feel most most willing to, whether it's uh, like the Indian cosmology, particularly around the masculine, or is there corresponding masculine archetypes you know, within the Indian cosmology that in some ways maybe mirrors what we often find in the Western, or at least perhaps you know, in the Western men's or mythic men's movement, often what gets spoken to are the Jungian archetypes of the king, warrior, magician, and lover mm-hmm. as as a kind of framework in order to understand perhaps like the internal realm of what it means to be a man or the masculine. And at the same time, that can feel a almost like a universalism that uh, a lot of men say in this culture maybe inadvertently take on as if all cultures have a, the same map. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, they definitely don't. (laughs) And I'd love to hear a bit more, yeah, about your understanding. Well, I mean, I think the first thing to understand about about India, specifically, you know, the Hindu um, culture, is it's it's more of like a choose-your-own-adventure kind of thing. (laughs) And so you are able to identify with the archetypes that most resonate with, you know, you might call your soul blueprint, Mm. right? And so depending on you know, what you resonate with, that's going to actually kind of perform or inform your own spiritual life, your own sort of becoming mm-hmm. as a persona or as a personality, right? So we think of persona, the, the Latin word is mask, mm-hmm. right? And that, you know, Joseph Campbell speaks of these masks of God and that we are all simultaneously living in this imminent experience of the world, but we're also a a vessel for the, for the transcendent, for what's you know, beyond the scope of what the eyes can see, that mm-hmm. we are a composite of energies and, and, and archetypes that play through us. And that's what allows us to be an artist of our life, right? And that we can play very many roles in the course of our life. Mm-hmm. So from an Eastern perspective, you know, we're not actually limited to having to represent or embody one archetype in particular. However, based on what they call our svabhav, svabhav is one's disposition. Mm. So everybody has a kind of a disposition, right? I mean, uh, there's a there's a certain quality of a rose and there's a certain quality of a sunflower. They're just, they give you different feelings when you look at them. And there's this sort of intrinsic thing in the natural world where everything has its own, you know, characteristic essence or quality. Mm. Now, that characteristic essence or quality determines your svadharma. Svadharma means your personal sense of purpose or duty or role and place in the world Mm. right Mm -hmm. and this connects not only to this sense of purpose of what makes you feel great and alive but it also has to somehow feed into and serve the world in some kind of a way Mm. it doesn't always have to be socially recognized but it is some sense of there is a recognition of well, I'm here to somehow participate in the world in some way. I was brought here with a purpose. And then the the, the old term for Hinduism is sanatam dharma, which means the eternal dharma. Mm. So you have this, this, this disposition, 
which is svabhav, svadharma, which is your own personal sense of purpose, and that's connected to the cosmic purpose, the cosmic laws or the laws of existence and nature, and that you can't really separate these things. When you try to identify and fulfill your purpose without somehow being in relationship with the laws of existence, then you're kind of out of the loop. You know, it's like you have to do it in context, mm-hmm. right? And in dialogue and in relationship with. So where does the archetype come in? Well, the archetype comes in because in that process of wanting to understand who you are, we are looking outside for blueprints, for mm-hmm. symbols that resonate with that soul essence. And then that becomes then kind of like a, a guidance system, mm-hmm. right? Of, well, somehow I'm drawn to this and I'm drawn to this because there's some part of me that is seeking becoming. In my own personal life, I was drawn to uh, an image of of Lord Shiva. Mm -hmm. And Shiva is, in a way, kind of like the ultimate masculine. He's like a badass, right? I mean, he's (laughs) he's like the the, the archetypal yogi. He can sit for months without food or without water. He's a cosmic dancer in the stories. He's absolutely fierce. Like, when when, when shit's going down and nobody knows how to save the world, it's like, call Shiva. Like, Mm. nobody's going to mess with him. Like, he can figure out this situation, you know? You know, but he's also a bad boy. You know, he's kind of like the James Dean sometimes of, like, the Hindu (laughs) mythology where... You know, he can he can he can drink and party and yet he can go into deep and profound states of meditation Mm -hmm. and he has no interest whether women are into him or not. Um, So he's he was very appealing to me. Mm. Um, Is there a particular story of his even, you know, maybe a brief version that you felt like, whoa, that really hits you maybe at a young age or that became this like maybe a story or, you know, a a moment in a story that really hits you and, and became that guiding post for you? Well, I think connected to the archetype of the masculine, um, there is a story, Joseph Campbell tells it beautifully, um, once there was a, a situation in, in the world where the demons had amassed such great power, and there's one demon in particular who nobody could defeat. His name was Jalandar. And so Lord Shiva was called and said, Lord Shiva, uh, this demon is undefeatable. And he said, call this demon to me. And the demon sent a message back saying, you know what, I'll spare Shiva's life as long as he gives me his consort, Parvati. Mm. Nobody speaks to Shiva that way. So he summons him out of his own consciousness to appear before (laughs) him, right? So Shiva's there and this demon shows up. And Lord Shiva says, Watch this. And he sends a lightning bolt out of his third eye and it hits the earth. And from the place that it hits the earth, this immense demon towering far over the the, the solar system is sitting there and he's got biceps that are like huger than mountains and they're like flowing down like through his body these immense veins and he's got fangs that are dripping with blood and poison is coming out of his mouth and he's got these huge bloodshot red eyes and when when Jalandar the demon sees what Shiva has conjured he immediately falls at his feet saying please just grant me mercy or clemency and so Shiva following the righteous way granted him clemency because he had asked for mercy Mm. right but now shiva turns and now he has this demon that he's created that he has to deal (laughs) with and so the demon looks at shiva and with these bloodshot eyes he says you've created me to consume to destroy Mm. and i must consume something and shiva says to him well if you must begin with yourself Mm. and so the demon starts to eat his own feet and then his own legs and then his own torso and his own arms until all that's left of him is this gory face Hmm. And Shiva says, this is a beautiful face. This is a face of dignity. I want this face to be put at the head of my temple. And all who wish 
to enter into the mansion of my presence must bow to this face and know its meaning and then they can sit with me yeah and wow. you know the meaning of the story or one possible meaning is that life feeds on life mm-hmm. life must eat in order to continue to exist that this kind of con- this suffering is built into the world however the way of the yogi is to turn that consumptive energy that destructive energy which is part of the life force within on oneself mm. and how do you start to eat your own darkness and your own shadows how do you overcome the the predatory and consumptive patterns of one's own psyche and begin to turn them in, inwardly as a way of purifying oneself that is the journey of yoga mm. that is tapas that is discipline that is heat that is purification mm. and so for me i was like you know that's in and that's what she was saying he's like this is the way of the yogi mm. the way of the man right is to take and sublimate those energies that would otherwise be very destructive and turn them within himself so that he can actually attain the state of higher consciousness and i think in a way that is the the higher vision of what do we do with that masculine energy mm-hmm. you know and and shiva kind of presents that hmm. well, i mean you you way you describe this sort of carnage let's say that this demon was about to uh, wreck upon the earth and how uh, in some ways that characterizes at least the perception of the masculine around the world and I know from my own story that you know from early on with I think a level of sensitivity towards uh, witnessing this level of carnage and destruction that seemed largely perpetuated by men upon you know the planet itself um, and a lot of the women in my life that uh, the response for me was in a way like a disassociation mm-hmm. it was like, whew, I, like I'm not like other men like other men are terrible, but I'll be a nice guy. Like I'll be like not like one of them. And what happened was I realized only years later that that really disassociated an aspect of myself, of the masculine from myself, under the guidance or this under the guise of that this would make me you know one of the good ones. And so in, in a way it was a journey of going back and retrieving that my relationship to my own masculine self as a way that actually allowed me to begin to even you know be in a in a in this kind of let's say disciplined uh alchemy mm-hmm. with with these energies that you're speaking to that mm-hmm. can wreak a lot of destruction mm-hmm. but i'm curious how that showed up in your story then as you were growing up you know maybe in adolescence and and beyond how did that show up for you and in, in your own journey of quote what it means to be a man well i think i was looking for initiation like you know i was looking for intensity mm. i wanted and and so it felt like a healthy way of intensity was to pilgrimage and mm. and and go and see how long i could meditate or try fasting and you know i i sort of took this spiritual approach i suppose yogic approach to being like how do i overcome the body and look into my shadows mm. and but the thing is when you make it too much of a project and you have to like when you're young you're just looking for something that's really intense and challenging it's just part of the energies right and so in a way it's it's very powerful it's very potent i mean as i'm growing older now i i'm looking at it differently it's becoming more subtle mm-hmm. it's becoming more deep it's not becoming something that that is almost like kind of like an outward validation so i don't know if that answers your question but that was part of it for me without you know maybe getting into specifics around it mm-hmm. but yeah. yeah well i'm curious even to go more into yeah, how has how has it been to be on this masculine journey for you? I like your relation to masculinity or what it means to be a man. Well, 
I mean, the sins of the father visited upon their sons. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I think that was the core thing for me was,、um, you know, I wanted to, to find a path to embodying a masculine presence that was not carrying the corruption、mm-hmm. that I had seen in my father and some other male figures in my life. Not that a lot of love wasn't given to me, and, and、mm-hmm. it's not a question of that. It's just, is this what I want to carry forward?、Yeah. So, the process of embodying the masculine kind of you know, started when I became aware of you know, how I could choose differently. A lot of it involved about my relationship with women. And,、um, could you I, name some of the patterns that you recognized? Yeah.、Uh, I think a strong sense of entitlement. I think that's a very common, I don't know if it's a universal, I suppose, but Indian male feeling like I'm entitled.、Mm. It's just you just walk around with like entitlement around you. Particularly so, like towards women? Yeah, towards, I think towards women as well. I feel that my mother is very, is a very conscious woman. We really. We're influenced by her and our relationships with women. We try to be very like, loving and respectful, and it's very important. But at the same time, there's stuff that just rears its head that you're like, oh, wow, this is my dad kind of showing up, right?、Mm. A sense that sense of like entitlement or the sense of like, I'm more important than you.、Mm. Like, why do I assume I'm more important than you?、Mm-hmm. And it's just an assumption that women will just go along with that and be like, yeah, sure, you're more important than me. Your needs are more important than my own.、Mm-hmm. And I think that's just one of the core things. And I, and I have continually had to face that of that's not true.、Mm-hmm. And how do I then relate to somebody if my own fulfillment and direction and priorities are just as equally as important as your own?、Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's,、uh, that's, been, that's, been, a, that's been a shift.、Mm-hmm. you know? It came to my attention that、uh, heartbreak was a big part of your journey as well. And perhaps this could be a moment for you to speak more about it. Well, I was, you wouldn't recognize me in high school. I was a rugby player, I was a jock, I had a shaved head and a motorbike. Whoa. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> look like this, like yogi, whatever, right? Wandering mystic. Yeah, definitely not. And、uh, so when I fell in love, some kind of like armor just like got cracked.、Mm. And then I experienced a kind of. Openness and feminine energy and love in me that just overwhelmed me. And that was really transformative. And it kind of dovetailed where I encountered some spiritual teachings. And I think I was receptive to it because love just, I don't know, it just needs the dough. And it's like ready to throw you in the oven to、mm. get baked,、mm-hmm. you know? And so I started to get baked. And, and then I went through heartbreak where this woman just completely stopped communicating with me. And I, I went into depression. And I remember about a year later, I was walking around Stanley Park. And then I realized that this love that I felt、um, was the same love that the mystics had been speaking of.、Mm. Like it, it was exactly the same. Like if I, like you wouldn't know the difference. Like they wouldn't know I was talking about her. And you would have thought that I was talking about God. Like it's the same thing. And, And that this love was something they said is existence. It's in you and it's available through all of life. Like, and this is the purpose of it. And, and it dawned on me that I didn't need, 
it didn't require another human being mm. that I was infatuated with to experience that again. Then that got me really interested in like in Sufism and spirituality because mm -hmm. I was like, wow, like this, this is real. Mm -hmm. They've all experienced it. Mm -hmm. So then, you know. Did you feel you reoriented then away from like uh, partnership in this case with a woman as sort of the source to the divine and into your own uh, connection through spiritual practice? No, I, but I did project the divine much more onto women. <laughs> <laughs> more so after. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, at that point when I was first fell in love, I didn't know about any of the divine stuff. But then afterwards, then I started to seek that in the woman who mm -hmm. could promise that. Mm -hmm. I mean, despite me knowing about the other things, but you, you know, we're creatures of habit. So then I started to look for the, you know, the, the woman divine, yeah. um, which was a bit prone to romanticism and fantasy. Um, and then, then oh, again, yeah. they have to show up potentially in a certain way, which wasn't entirely natural, I have uh -huh. to say. But I mean, it produced what I think to be quite excellent poetry. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bly talks about this in Iron John. There's actually a whole chapter, I think, called, um, you know, Meeting the Girl in the Garden, or something along those lines. Yeah. But it very much talks about this, in a way, the confusion of the divine feminine with the human, you know, regular woman. Yes. And how, in a way, it's a, it's a youthful mistake, but also one totally um, part of growing up and part of the first encounter is to see the divine in a way hold the divinity in, in a way uh, in front of they're also very human very i want to say flawed but but in that sense they're certainly not the the image of perfection often heartbreak can come to a, a kind of recognition of almost like a letting down you know when when quote the real woman let's say behind it shows themselves let's say that there's a kind of way hey, we were supposed to be the divine what happened and not realizing or maybe hopefully realizing at some point that it was that's the man bringing that projection in the first place and that there's a kind of reckoning that happens after that of the need to be able to hold both, that everyone is a teardrop or moon upon the water of the divine, but that not the wholeness of that, that they are just simply fragments of. Well, in that tradition, you know, where one finds one's archetype, what ended up coming to me actually through a woman, actually two women, the first woman was gave me this uh, beautiful painting of Shiva, and then the next one gave me a different image of Shiva mm. called Ardhanareshwar, which is, a, is is half man and half woman. Mm. It's the only deity of Shiva where it's it's completely split down the middle. And this is an image that I look at every day. That has become my own personal deity, you might say. Mm. Deity not in that this is my God, you know, this idea of the big G, God, but deity as in this is an aspect of the universal consciousness mm. that I seek to embody. I was looking at it this morning again, and it's interesting because when you look at Shiva, he has the snake around his neck, which represents transformation. He has the Trishula, which is a trident, and it has three prongs, which represents the three phases of time and the ability to pierce through time. On the Trishula is also a drum called a Damaru, which is what keeps the rhythm. It's the timekeeper, mm. keeps the rhythm of existence, right? And he has a bull, and the bull, known as Nandi, is one who is a representative of carrying the yoke of the Dharma. Mm. And, and a bull is a workhorse. It can carry the burden, right? 
So here you have on the masculine side, this question or this representation of being able to, to master and manipulate the subjects of time and of space and of dharma and transformation. All these things that Shiva represents in this path of the will. Mm. Right? The yogi is using his will to master the body and the mind. The other half of him, who's Parvati, in this image, she's simply holding a flower. Mm. Now look at that contrast. All those things, and she's holding a flower. Now, the flower is surrender. If one can see truly the beauty of a flower, time, space, transformation, laws of existence, all of it is there in the flower. Mm. It's just simply surrendering to it. And her vahana, or vehicle, is a tiger. No, sorry, a lion. And lion is courage. It takes actually more courage to surrender mm. than it does to be a bull and be disciplined. Yeah. So this feminine path of surrender is very challenging for a man. Mm. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, what does it mean to embody both discipline and surrender within ourselves? Mm -hmm. right? The part that wants to control and to shape and to structure, as well as to allow for, you might say, eros or surrender or letting go. And that balance of surrender and effort, mm. that is the the inner harmonization, I feel, of the masculine and feminine energies that, that I seek, but which also make me, when I'm in a circle where people are identifying their pronoun, I just say I'm a two-legged. Because my own personal ideal is the integration of man and woman within oneself. For me, that's the new masculinity for me. But how new is it? It's old. This has been around for thousands of years. It showed mm -hmm. up on my altar, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, is that the new masculinity? I think it's, it's the timeless truth. And I feel that where masculine or male work is in many ways a, a spiritual dimension in the West now, mm -hmm which is something that you represent, and it's beautiful, actually. I learn a lot from you in that you were spiritually evolving through this work. The transcendental view, when you see the mystics and the sages, they're not like becoming men. Mm -hmm. They're becoming God. Right? They're becoming God itself. And so for me, that became the ideal, which is I never had the ideal of how do I become a better or greater or more powerful man. It was how do I become divine? Mm -hmm. And that image for me was the balance of the male and female energies and paths within oneself. Mm -hmm. And that's what it remains for me to this day. Mm -hmm. I understand as well, if you'd be willing to speak to it, you've been on and may continue to be on a path of celibacy? Until very recently. Okay. Yeah. But for some time, yeah. you'd held that path. Yeah. I'm curious to hear uh, how this played into like this understanding that you've just shared. Um, particularly around right use of sexual energy or the journey that you had uh, and the decision to do so, to become celibate for a time, and then what you learned from that process with this as your beacon of this unification of masculine and feminine. Well, the word itself, brahmacharya, means to graze on the divine. So really it means that what the energies that you feed off of, they should be sacred energies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so even if you were to have a sensual relationship, 
can you can you do it in a way that you're feeding off the divine yeah so um for me i came to that celibacy i had tried it before but it wasn't natural so i found i was suppressing things and it didn't feel right but then i really came to love someone and we separated and i had opportunities then to be or to have sexual relations with another woman but my heart was like no you love someone else and then my heart told me to be celibate mm-hmm. it wasn't my mind my heart demanded it hmm. to be in integrity with its own deepest feelings and that's what i was like okay now it's right and then once i remained with that and i continued to love this person but you know we were at a distance and um you know i don't think she quite knew the, the depth of what i felt mm. I started to, uh, I remained with it because that one choice of integrity felt really good. And it felt better and better every time I made it again and again and again. And doesn't mean I wasn't horny at times. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's not about that. Mm-hmm. It's about at some point there is a integrity of the moment of choice that builds your character. Mm. And it also, as a result, keeps you more open and available to that inner voice and that inner guidance because it kind of gets staticky when you're making choices that go against the grain of what your heart knows to be true until you almost like forget that there is a clear signal, Mm. (laughs) you know, and that signal started to get like clearer and stronger Um, And my time in the monastery, every summer I would go to the monastery and I would spend three months meditating and studying with my teacher and and, and working and living as a monk. And so that really helped to reinforce that, that sense of wanting to have that purity. Uh, So it remained with me. and, And I found that actually it brought more focus and creative energy um, and capacity to manifest my visions than I'd ever had previously. And I think uh, part of it was that I was celibate. And the other part of it is that I healed the relationship with my father. Mm. And those two things were very big for me. Mm -hmm. They kind of both happened. Mm -hmm. Mm. Would you speak a bit more about the healing with your father? Well, I hadn't spoken to my father much at all over many years. And I went on a pilgrimage to India. And it just so happened that I didn't come back to Canada. Mm. And so I connected my father who was in Thailand and, you know, I'd missed his birthday, but he's like, why don't you come to Thailand? So I came to Thailand and then I started working with my dad and my dad's a workaholic. So I never really got into know him because I never worked. The only way to know the guy would be to like, literally have an office next to him. So that's <laughs> what I did. And so yeah. I started working with him in this environment I would never do. I mean, it's a theme park. Mm. And so I was here I am working and he, he runs a theme park. And so I'm working in the theme park and I started to get to know him as a man. And I started to see my own qualities in him, both the, the, a lot of the really good qualities too. Like, wow, this came from my dad. Like, I'm grateful. And I also, I, I realized I love this man. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't, my only idea of my father was a story mm-hmm. rather than getting to know him and seeing him and being like, I just love this guy, <laughs> you know, like it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And 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 that was very very healing for me mm-hmm. and in 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 the process he really empowered me to take action in in a space of a lot of responsibility right because you know i'm the son of a businessman and and he's the owner of this company and so 
I was in a position to make a lot of, you know, important decisions or people would come to me for decisions. Mm -hmm. And so I took on that responsibility and there's a lot to do, a lot to execute. Mm -hmm. And I think what it brought out in me was a opportunity, an example of a very disciplined work ethic. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I feel male mentorship can really provide, which is what does it mean to have a disciplined work ethic? Mm. Because that, I think, is very fundamental to what we might consider to be the, the positive expression of the masculine, mm -hmm. which is you intend to do something and you take the steps to do it. And regardless of the challenges that ar arise on the way, you are willing to see it get done, mm -hmm. right? And the, the unhealthy part is, well, I'll do it at the expense of all these other people's feelings and their well-being and the well-being of other relations. Mm -hmm. Now that's unhealthy, mm -hmm. but the willingness to, to, to complete and to create despite the inertia mm -hmm. and the entropy of the laws of nature, you know, that is, 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 a, is a strong masculine principle. Mm -hmm. and, and my father, I think, helped me to find that in myself. Mm. Well, there's a lot in there. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of Bly, and he talks about, again, in Iron John, that for often uh, young men, they journey to meet their fathers again at a certain age. Usually it's mid-30s, you know, mid to late 30s. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, track then. <laughs> and it's also because often they, and in this case, you said uh, largely you'd had a story of your father um, rather than a direct uh, relationship with for many years. And for our Men often that means that they kind of grow up in the the story of the father that the mother tells them, or that the, the mother's perceptions of, and, and as benevolent as they might be, or as flattering, let's say. But there's still a perception; it's not a direct experience of the father, let's say. And so I hear in you this journey to then meet him as a man as well, man to man, which is, um, as you say, a beautiful and necessary encounter to to kind of re meet now outside of the the shadow of the presence or not in presence of the parent, right? Which is a very different archetype. The other aspect of that is this quality of discipline. You know, I've heard, um, I can't remember where I heard it, but it was that a masculine sense of discipline is, again, like you said, the willingness to complete the, the thing that, the commitment that was said. Mm -hmm. Whereas a feminine sense of discipline or, or a feminine commitment could be to remain true to what's true as it changes. And so you know, there is an integrity to that too, actually. And, oh, yeah, wow. Right? And how, in a way, they're, they're, neither of them is better or worse, of course, but they both have their beautiful qualities and they also have their shadow. Mm -hmm. And I do think that there is something about um, also the, the role of the father. You know, I am a father myself. My son is 13 months now. And, you know, I'm reading a lot and I'm absorbing a lot on this sense that both the father and the mother have two kinds of love, actually, to give, two kinds of medicine. And that often... Uh, again, maybe archetypally, the mother is this, the unconditional love that is this safe haven, you know, the safe bosom to nestle into and to be held and to be loved, you know, forever and ever. And that is the such deep, necessary medicine. And for the father, though, um, archetypally, it is in a way actually to love them enough to uh, encourage them or, or um, invite them into discipline, mm -hmm. into um, the world itself that is not going to be necessarily kind to them. Mm -hmm. And in that, that is actually a masculine love. It is a, it it is. Is a father love It is that is so deeply necessary. Exactly. You, what you just articulated is the opening of every surah of the Quran. Mm. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. 
Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. That is the meaning. Bismillah. Before you go to pray, Bismillah. I take my ego out of the way. I step in the name of Allah. Ar-Rahman. The love of the mother. Unconditional. Compassionate. Ar-Rahim. Merciful. Which means, I have the mercy to make you take one step towards me so that I can take ten steps towards you. Mm. I have the mercy to bring challenges into your life so that you will be steeled and strengthened so that you can meet life. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that is the love of the mother and father. And that is the grace of Allah, that everybody comes in with a Rahman, a Rahim, available to them in the universe. Ideally, through the father and the mother, they receive that. But I think Bismillah is very important because Bismillah is this, I'm walking with the, with the name and with the grace of the divine. Yeah. And that, I think, comes back to what we were saying before of it being within us, mm. you know, that I did rites of passage work for many years and as a, as a leader and, and kind of organizer of rites of passage for youth. And at some point, I really asked myself, what is the meaning of growing up? Mm. What is maturity? Because that's the intent of rites of passage is to mature. And for me, it's to become your own mother and your own father. Hmm. That for me is is successful initiation. Yeah. Or successful maturity. Is that you source whatever it was that we were seeking or life wanted to give us through the mother and father. Whether it was given or not, we evolved to the place where we find and receive those energies within ourselves. And in the situation in life, we can provide the adequate guidance or dose of the mother and father inside of us so that we can meet the moment with the maturity that it requires. And in that way, then we become a steward of life. And everyone in any situation, in a way, can become our children. We're feeding it with the divine mother and the divine father in ourselves. Mm. And, and I see those who are truly spiritual mature, they seem to have that ability Mm. They seem to be able to meet life in that way, as a mother or as a father, as a man or as a woman, whatever is called for in that moment. And that when we find that unification in ourselves, we meet the moment with the balance of masculine and feminine that brings harmony or helps the moment to become what it needs or what it's meant to be. So looking out at the world today and the culture as it is, like is the resolution maybe or the response needed this androgynous being? Mm -hmm. Like is this perhaps what the scriptures have been speaking of, where that that ultimately is, in a sense, the, the resolution of the tension between, you know, say, what's gone haywire in the culture as it is. Because we do see, right, as we look out, it again... It's happening yeah. in the millennial generation. It's becoming more and more androgynous than ever before. Mm. It's what's happening. I mean, biologically, it's happening. Psychologically, sociologically, it's happening. More than ever before that we know, it's happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know about ancient history, what it mm. was like, but it seems to be the case now. I I don't know. Would you agree or not? That I certainly think that there's a a shift in the the access to these different uh, conversations. Let's say, for example, like I know my stepdaughter uh, has access to a lot of um, YouTube videos and a lot of say gender fluid, g- gender or non-binary folk on YouTube in particular, where they often speak about their own experience and they become, you know, like many talk shows for their their own perspectives. That access to these kinds of perspectives, in a way, invites the opportunity, I think, for the youngers to actually wonder mm-hmm. about, right? Oh, what am I? Am I that actually? Mm-hmm. And I've heard even in, in the sort of maturation of, of through rites of passage and through 
youth is that at a certain stage, I think it's around, you know, 13, 14, it is to try on different personas, different ego structures, you know, different identities in order to actually see like what fits and what feels true and all these things. So in that sense, I see a lot of the younger generation um, willing to, you know, try on a lot. And often that does mean to try on, you know, alternate gender pronouns and maybe then see where they go and see if they're still true, let's say after a few years for some. And for some, it very clearly is more true to them to actually have maybe not fit in within the binary. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, I do think it's one, it's access to these perspectives. And at the same time that there is, I would say, an overall crisis of meaning, actually, that's been going on. I think that, you know, largely modernity itself is not a um, unified, quote, people. In fact, it's it's a deep amalgamation of, in a way, actually, a lot of displaced peoples from colonization, from a technology from all of these ways in which nation states themselves have become, again, like an amalgamation of lots of different peoples. And so in that fragmentation, there's not a unity to point to, to say, oh, like, for example, a lot of indigenous cultures, uh, or maybe the the nature of an indigenous culture is to have a particular way, a uh, life way, and a particular way of doing things, which is unique to them and to the place mm-hmm. where they are. And I think modernity in its struggle to uphold a universal a universal response to anything. And in many ways, I think the gender, the clean gender binary, this idea, well, you're a man or a woman, what do you mean? That itself is harder to uphold when you could say the foundations of modernity themselves are deeply challenged. Mm. Uh, and so in that collapse, of course, then there's this sort of, well, what does anything mean now? And I think that the gender is one part of that. Uh, and what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? It misses something if it's not also bound to, what does it mean to be a man now and here? like putting it in a place and putting it in a time. Because then it actually has, I think, a relational context. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, then it's just another race for a universal. And I think universalism itself, which is something that uh, you know I study with a teacher, Stephen Jenkinson, who speaks a lot about this, it is one of the spells of the West, that there is such a thing as universal. And so again, all of these, I think, are coming to um, create the atmosphere in which we have now. And so uh, largely, you know, this podcast itself is really... Uh, an attempt to look to the old stories, to look to the old archetypes, to say, what do they mean now? And what have they meant? Mm-hmm. And uh, what do they mean to the people I speak to? And I've been appreciating hearing what it's meant to you. Mm-hmm. My teacher would say that the one spiritual lo- rule is that everything that limits us has to be put aside. So insofar as our gender identifications expand us, expand our possibilities and our potentials, they're serving us to the degree in which they they limit our expansion i feel that they they might be a hindrance whatever we focus on expands mm. yeah? so if you have some problem in your life and you keep thinking about it you keep focusing on it you kind of amplify it i mean I, I don't mean in any way to say that well, well there's these social problems and we shouldn't talk about them or think about them because i, that's, I don't mean that But what I mean is that especially for a younger culture or a younger generation, because of that propensity to seek identity, and it seems so intensely important and pressurized, we make these gender differences a lot bigger than they actually are. When you see children in a playground, they're not seeing it really. Yeah. Now, of course, there's a hormonal process that happens. There's a social cultural process that happens. 
in which we start to really differentiate between between genders, right? But I feel like as we move through that, there's a a spiritual recognition of the unity of these within us. And I think the question should be more about how do we balance the masculine and feminine qualities? And like I remember, you know, there were years where my mom wanted me to be more of a man, okay? And and she would contrive situations trying to get me to hang out with this guy or that guy that was older that was like he could build shit and this guy could do this. And it was almost like, I was like, okay, I know you're trying to like make a man out of me because dad's not around kind of thing, right? And that just feels a bit awkward, you know, when someone's like trying to fit you into this role. What I feel was really there was how do you bring, she she saw, and a mother has wisdom, which is you need that rahim, you need that masculine energy and quality to really prepare you for life right and the imbalances that you're speaking is because this this energy is imbalanced in you and that is going to cause problems for you as you go ahead now there's wisdom there and so if we can recognize and and have the language more of the qualities and help people find the balance of qualities so that they can meet life right with authenticity right and 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 with grace and with preparedness, then I think we're really doing a service for people. And I, and, I, and I think that would be interesting to look at, well, what does that, you know, look like? You know? And that the balance of those qualities is different for, you know, for different people. I'm left with this sort of a construct or a question, which is, is gender a problem to solve? Because I think a lot of the responses tend to go that direction. It will be that the problem is that gender exists. I mean, this is often a feminist uh, an orientation, my understanding of having spent a number of years researching, mm. is that it seems to be that gender itself is the problem to solve. And so the response is to kind of do away with gender. And I'm not saying you're saying this. But I also think there's a recognition, even in what you're, you are saying and what I believe, which is that there is something, you could call it the masculine. Uh, and there is something called the feminine. That whether or not they're, they're polarities of energy in the universe, mm-hmm. uh, they manifest as, as, as a variety of expressions, but that the that there is something, and whether the biological corresponds with that, like you said, you know, kids in the playground. There's been lots of studies done where, yeah, the boys will end up creating like mini hierarchies, kind of emergently, uh, and the women will be, I know, much more willing to relate in a different way. <laughs> that you know, again, it's beyond social construct. It feels, and yet it just somewhat emerges. So I feel on one hand. There's ways in which the response can try to um, dis, dis, or dissolve the kind of the biological expression that seems apparent to most people, uh, to, to even just to observe certain behaviors, particularly in kids, um, as if that itself will somehow solve it. But then it doesn't solve the kind of underlying, what feels like a truism or a true of, trueness of the expression, that there just is something called the masculine feminine. And I guess, well, I guess I'm saying other, other cultures in particular, maybe the indigenous perspective is that they're, they're there in a way to orient a culture to come into right relationship. But they're not a problem to solve. No, they're, they're not. And, but where I feel, which is where it's interesting that you asked about the Eastern versus the Western, mm-hmm. is that the Western feels inherently dull. Okay, which is in the East, it's like Shiva and Shakti, consciousness and energy. Mm-hmm. And the interplay that consciousness provides the material world, the enlivening force to play and create the manifold expressions for it to realize itself 
right? In、mm -hmm. the process of this thing that we call life. And there's this beautiful dance between the two and a sacred recognition of their interdependence,、mm -hmm. right?、Mm -hmm. and, and, and that becomes then like this big mythic possibility of the beauty of both and、mm -hmm. the necessity of both, right? That stillness and movement,、mm -hmm. right? The one who meditates and the one who dances. And then, you know, when we see that, wow, Shakti is so beautiful, let me recognize that expression and embodiment in the feminine within myself and around me. We appreciate it, as is austerity and stillness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and silence, right? And, and, and those things are they're qualities of being. And, and maybe the time hasn't yet quite arrived. Or where does the West, West maybe they, they're not furnished with the archetypes, or I don't know what <laughs> it is, right? Where that becomes part of the discourse.、Mm -hmm. right? Because now those are spiritual things, you know, like we can't talk about that. We, we're the, the, almost the spiritual anesthesia、mm -hmm. of Western culture. Actually, inhibits the sacred from entering into the discussion. And then what are we going to do about it? No, you now you're stuck to have to be like, everything is materialistic. It's like man、yeah. or woman, gender this, and, and it's this, this, this hormone versus that hormone. You're like, okay, fine. That is true. And, and there's definitely a, a,、mm -hmm. a physiological basis for this. But the mythic is looking at what is the world behind the world?、Mm. How are the divine energies playing through us? How do we awaken to that?、Mm -hmm. I don't know what the solution for that is in the context of the West.、Mm. I love that you shared it like that because I do think that, in a way, maybe feminism could be seen as a response to the loss of right relationship, where, yeah, the masculine, the masculine has become domineering and predatory and all the rest. In India as well. Let me well, tell you, Indian, Indian masculinity and patriarchy is some of the worst you'll find out there.、Mm -hmm. So I'm not by any means. You know, have this recorded that I'm not saying that India is some kind of poster <laughs> child for the、yeah. perfect balance of masculine and feminine energies.、Yeah. But archetypally, it's there.、Mm -hmm. If you want to access it, it's here.、Yeah. We provide it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I guess, exactly it. That, too, in a way, the West is so fundamentally demythologized as if to strip away anything that is sort of outside the, as you say, the rational and scientific paradigm, as if somehow that will then. Provide a better map to, to the solution of fixing the right relationship. It seems to me that there is something contained within the mythological that, in fact, like the mechanism or the power of story, in fact, to provide the, the pathways to right relationship seems to me much more imaginative and、mm. creative. In its possibility of actually coming to it. And this is why, again, this podcast for me、mm. is that, because I don't feel we can get there to right relationship without story, without the mythologies that actually allow us to understand that it's about relationship.、Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, I have a question about a story that I've heard many, many a time. Okay. And it's a story of how Shiva came to be half man and half woman、mm. in this particular situation. And it was such that Shiva was teaching all the different techniques of coming to recognize one's unlimited essence to become one with the universe. And his consort Parvati wanted to know. And there were a group of disciples around Shiva, and they had to learn through the intellectual way, through the way of technique, through the way of effort and discipline. Parvati, on the other hand, he knew. It was a different way for her. So he invited her to come and sit on his lap. 
and she went to sit on his lap, and as she sat on his lap, she merged with him. And in merging with him, everything that he knew, she knew as well. And they became together half man and half woman, and all the secrets of the universe were revealed to her in that moment of merging and surrender. And so, you know, that's the gift, I feel. Like if we were to accept and surrender within ourselves, then all that we seek to have and know will be gifted to us. The question I have, which is, Shiva, what did he learn through that surrender? Mm. And that's not spoken of. Now, archetypally, Shiva is the unlimited consciousness itself. He's not so much in the flow of what is he learning. He's teaching all that is consciousness. Yeah. But I feel as we bring it into this present day, like for the man, when we merge with that feminine or we invite that feminine to come and we surrender to it, there's this profound learning that could take place only when the two come together. Mm. For me, the source of the new masculine is when those two really come together. And I'm not talking about, you know, new age tantra events you know, that, not that kind of like Cacao, that, that movement or, you know, whatever. Um, although there is a very powerful healing and, and, and a lot to, to learn from the central relationship between man and woman. But I feel, how do we learn to surrender? Mm. I feel that's a really interesting question at this time for men. What does it mean to surrender? And I'm interested in that. My perception is that a lot of Eastern spirituality, particularly that of the ascetic, the, you know, you picture the Buddha sitting under the tree, the meditator in the cave, oftentimes their orientation, let's say, is for the transcendent. It seems to be the motion is up and out. Often associated with the feminine, of course, is the more the, the imminent, the, the body, the deep um, relationship to the body and in that sense to all that will die, all that will decay and feed life again. There's something in the tension between those poles that I feel is a little bit what you're speaking to with this, the need for the right relationship or the unification between them because the transcendent becomes some sense a, a sort of fool's errand as if, you know, a Tower of Babel or something where the, the goal of, for it all, and this in a way sometimes or likely characterizes so much of the modern culture. It's kind of like we're building this tower, but it, it's like, why? Like, where are we going? And there's a story that Charles Eisenstein, uh, an author and speaker, speaks to, which he calls the story of ascent. Again, this transcendence, where there's this sort of vague notion that that the human destiny is to essentially, literally, build up and out to the you know the the cosmos and to explore the galaxy and to basically become masters of the universe. So again, it's a very um, perspective of domination that it's ultimately the human destiny to essentially come to a position of lords and masters of the universe. Whereas the feminine pole seems to be this other deeper recognition of life has an intelligence that is in trying to give orientation, you could say. Humans, human cultures that have the capacity to remain in contact with life are constantly giving orientation for how to be in right relationship. And maybe this, again, is the nature of what seems to be indigenous culture. And so this very modern diversion seems to be a wayward track away from contact into a kind of fantasy realm known as you know civilization which 
uh, we now are seeing the consequence, which of course have been going on for some time, but the consequences have now reached such a epic proportion that the climate is literally in emergency and the biosphere is in collapse. Hmm. And so I hear in you what you're sharing though, this unification or this, in a sense, urgency for contact again with this masculine power, you could say, the power of will, the power of transcendence needs to come to contact again. It needs to be given orientation from the feminine, which largely is still bound to the intelligence of life. Mm -hmm. That the orientation comes from the feminine and then the action comes from the masculine. Mm -hmm. But when they are fall out of right relationship, this is what happens, mm -hmm. that you get this sort of never-ending project of more and better and beyond. Um, and yet there's a deep loneliness in that, which I think as well is, no surprise, also endemic to this civilization project. Mm. Yeah, well said. Well said. Maybe to mirror what I see in you, though, is, is a deep self-inquiry into finding that feminine orientation within yourself and how, how that is represented in your recognition of and the, the ennobling of the deity of which you've spoken the unification of these two, the masculine feminine within yourself. Because I think as a uh, inner alchemy, what it means is ideally that you no longer seek for the sort of transcendent project at all costs, nor the lack of discipline and sort of dwelling on inaction itself. And that uh, in the unification, and maybe that is the call for men, I think at large, is actually to come to that capacity to feel, to be in contact with the feminine. And then in that leading to right relationship with the feminine and with women, that the orientation likely is going to come from them. That to me is likely, you know, it, it becomes obvious to me actually now after spending five years doing a project called Amplify Her, in which a uh, deep dive into the feminine, that, that that is the gift of the feminine. And that the more that men can actually turn to, not be subservient to, which I think is also the, the consequence of taking it right back to the beginning of the International Men's Day, where the inability to stand for and to appreciate the beingness of men, like the shame that was felt and the guilt, which I as well was feeling as well. Like, oh, is this okay? Can I, can I celebrate you know, being a man? That to me is too far, right? That's, that's the subservience. That's the shame coming in for all of the things that you know, the, the wayward, the toxic uh, masculinity has done and yet not returning to that place of inherent nobility, which I think is also the deep gift of the masculine. And that the, the unification of the, the holistic mutuality of those two is actually the place that we need to get to. And there's a lot of hurt that's you know, got to come up first, no question. That's what we're seeing with Me Too and the rest, is that for a lot of men, in fact, it, the place is just to listen and to, yeah, to take up less space and not to argue, but just to be in the presence of and to feel the depth of the hurt that's gone on mm -hmm. and not take it personally in some ways. Yeah, I think creativity is probably the safest way to explore these things mm. within oneself. If anyone was interested, then they would, I think creativity offers the, the way to explore those energies. Mm. And the teachings of the mystics is, you know, a balance of wisdom and compassion, mm. you know those two things Nisargadatta Maharaj said wisdom tells me I'm nothing and love tells me that I'm everything mm. between these two poles my life flows that's that's the balance right it's 
immaculate emptiness and infinite fullness, the taste of that experience, when you have it, it shows you that that unity is right there within you. Mm. It's right there. It's right there within you. It is not something that can be fabricated. It already is. Mm. That's the that's the naturalness. And if people can come to that place of, it is already unified. Mm. It is already balanced. It is already whole. It is the nature of the life force itself. Then it's like we can relax into it. And then that's what I meant by like, what does it feel like to surrender into it? Why don't we just relax in our intrinsic male femaleness mm. and then it doesn't have to be such a project you know mm. something to think about thank you for listening to today's mythic masculine podcast if you liked what you heard be sure to subscribe on itunes spotify or wherever you're listening and leave a comment and if you'd like to support future episodes head over to my patreon page at patreon.com slash ian mac that's p-a-t R-E-O-N dot com slash I-A-N-M-A-C-K to become an ongoing funder. Thank you.